Hello and welcome to the Methades Bible Study Podcast. Methades is the weekly Sunday school class of Ian Pittman. As a teaching ministry of Kokomo Baptist Church, Methades encounters and explores Bible doctrine, theology, and apologetics as a Christian community learning the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. Thanks for listening. So last week we talked about uh, sort of an introduction to John's letters. What is it? Why is it that John is writing these? Why does he write them in the way that he writes them? Why do we have three and what are their functions? Um, And we remember that John's writing to a church that is particularly concerned with uh, the proliferation of heresy and of a false gospel from those so-called secessionists, those people who are saying that uh, either Jesus the man was too much human to be God, and so those who believe that he was the Messiah was not really the Messiah, or those people who say, well, he was too much God to be man, so he looked like a man, but really he didn't suffer and he didn't go through any of the uh, things that you all think that he did in order to fulfill the, the sacrificial element of the atonement. So John's writing against both of these ideas, and we start here today with Third John, which is... It seems backwards in some sense, um, but, well, there we go. Um, it's the letter to the pastor what not to do, and we're going to see that Third John is this what not to do, Second John is a letter to the congregation about what to do, and First John then is sort of a sermon or a summary of the doctrine that is right and good for Christian belief. Uh, now in First and Second John, you'll remember we talked about they're, they're pretty vague. Um, of course, there's no named author in any of the three. In Second and Third John, we do have the elder, whomever that is. Uh, but in Third John, we also have some other folks directly named. We have Gaius in verse 1, we have Diotrephes in verse 9, and we have Demetrius in verse 12. So what I want to do this morning is let's just read together the whole of Third John. It's only 15 verses, and then we'll kind of get started with our verse-by-verse analysis. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Behold, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth." I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. 
All right, so we have John calling out Diotrephes by name as a hindrance to the missionary efforts of the church. We also have John telling Gaius that his courier Demetrius is carrying a letter that is to be read to the congregation. Now, this is likely a reference to the sermon of 1 John. Now, remember last week we said they probably came sort of stacked together, 3 John, 2 John, and then 1 John. Um, in his letters to the congregation, 1 and 2 John, John wrote in general terms about efforts to undermine the church's access to the apostolic witness. But in this private letter to Gaius, we find that the threat is very, very real. Uh, so it's not, and this is part of the reason why I decided to start with 3 John, it's not that there's just some threat out there, but it's actually a very real threat, a very present threat in the church uh, that Gaius is ministering to and that John is writing to. Uh, I think it's Charles Spurgeon who said in the 1800s that the greatest threat to the uh, falling apart of churches is not from outside but from inside. Um, and here we have John saying the same thing, that Diotrephes is some sort of authority within the church, whether he is an elder in the church that Gaius pastors or whether he is a leader in the community of perhaps another church. But either way, Diotrephes has an enormous amount of influence and he is able to prevent the missionaries from doing their right work. All right, so more than any other New Testament letter, we have 3 John displaying many of the features of ordinary letters surviving from the ancient world. We have there in verse 2 a health wish, of course verse 1 a greeting, but in verse 2 a health wish, and in verse 3 a thanksgiving, a promise to visit to compensate for the shortness of the letter in verses 13 to 14, and a sharing of greetings with the recipient of the letter before the end there in verse 15. We have these other familiar details as well. There's a request in verse 6 and a commendation of someone known to both parties in verse 12, Demetrius. So then we have these casual references to other named individuals, and because it is so short, it probably would have fit on a single papyrus sheet. Now, 3 John shares some of these features with 2 John, uh, but it lacks 2 John's anonymity and the artificial, artificiality, if I can read my own words, of address. Um, it also doesn't have the theological implications that 1 John has, neither does it have any of the theology that the Gospel of John or Revelation have. Uh, 2 John has some of this, but because of the way that John presents it there, it makes it sort of difficult to place. So we have this weird relationship between 3 John and 2 John uh, with regard to how John approaches writing to the pastor and then to the congregation. Um, I would, I would argue probably that that weird relationship is because John writes this letter to Gaius. He writes a letter to the congregation, but he intends Gaius to preach that letter uh, and to explain to his church in more detail uh, what's going on in 2 John. But we'll get to 2 John. Um, however, we have this really weird thing going on in 3 John where if you've read First and 2 John and 3 John already, you know that John is the apostle of love. He uses love more than any other book in the New Testament. And yet here, we seem to have a very, very real polemic against Diotrephes. He is railing, absolutely railing against Diotrephes. 
Presumably, John himself has not experienced this directly, but it's been reported to him from other missionaries that this is what's going on, and this is the guy that's doing it. And then we have Gaius, who apparently knows these circumstances pretty well, so he doesn't need any more clarification. Now, this is probably what gives it away as a letter. If I were to write a letter to Miss Dot about something to do with the organ, I might just say, you know, that weird thing it does where it changes keys. Um, Y'all may or may not have any idea about what it does, but Miss Dot knows and probably knows more than I do because she's talked to the guy about why it does it. Uh, so the same thing is going on here. John, this letter that we have is a private letter to Gaius, and so we only have sort of one side of the story. Now, the question becomes, why did we get to keep this one? Why is this one still in the canon? Because it is so one-sided. Um, and the answer to that is because it helps to inform 1 John and 2 John. Uh, course we have all these people who have created reasons why uh, these three survive so closely together because in third John we have the reference in verse 9 there's a fourth letter somewhere that John wrote to Diotrephes or to the church that Diotrephes is at but Diotrephes doesn't let it through so there's somewhere you might say there's fourth John out there but we have these um, so we see 3 John as a companion letter to 2 John. It's supplementary to it and sent at the same time, probably. Um, there are those who say that 2 John, I have sent something, written something to the church, would refer, I mean, I'll try to say that again. There are those who would say in verse 9, the reference to the letter that I've just said is another letter that we don't have. Some say that is 2 John. Uh, the problem, I think, with that is we do have it. Um, and John's very clear that Diotrephes didn't let that in. All right, so Demetrius then is the bearer of these two letters, and it's very strange that John would put Demetrius against these two sort of community paragons, right? You have Diotrephes as a pastor, you have Gaius as a pastor, you have John the elder, and then you've got Diotrephes the mailman. And yet John holds him up as the most righteous, and really puts down on Diotrephes as the least righteous and encourages Gaius, in some ways, don't become like Diotrephes. Don't do this. So, thinking about 2 John and 3 John uh, together, the common subject of both of them is this problem of, hospitalities, of hospitality to missionaries who were bearers of these heresies. John says in, in 3 John, don't give them any quarter, don't house them, don't put up with them, keep them out. And he says in 2 John, if they're good missionaries, if they're Christian missionaries and you, and you recognize them as such, bring them in and take care of them like you know that you should. So we have a sort of balance here that, that balances out that weird seeming lack of love that's here. All right then. Verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. This letter begins with the usual sender to recipient greeting formula, and the sender is identified as the elder. Now, the elder addresses this letter, I'm going to move past that, to Gaius. We have Gaius, the name Gaius, in four other places in the New Testament, and in each case, the one bearing this name is found uh, as associated with the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, so Acts 19.29, he's Paul's traveling companion. Could be the same traveling companion in Acts 20, verse 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, this is someone whom Paul baptized in Corinth and is probably the same mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 23 as Paul's host. Now, as I said last week, Gaius is one of those names that's sort of like John or Bill or Bob or whatever in English. Everybody and their brother in the world, in that world at that time, was named Gaius. So, just because we have a bunch of them in the New Testament doesn't mean that any one of these are, in fact, the John mentioned, uh, the Gaius mentioned by John. But then he calls him the beloved Gaius, or as some translations put it, my dear friend. And this is a term which reflects the affectionate regard in which the elder held this fellow believer. So we know that he is a significant person in Christian circles, and we believe that he's a pastor based on the instruction that's given to him, but we don't really have any indication that he's a person of great authority in the community. He's just Gaius, the pastor of the presumably little home church down the street, or whatever the case may be. But then he describes him as one whom I love in truth. In Aletheia. Uh, this can be, as, can be constructed as truly or in truth. Uh, truly there meaning faithfulness to the truth of Christ or if it's translated as in truth then what we're getting is sincerity. But we have in verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth, which seems to indicate faithfulness to the truth of Christ. Similarly, in verse 2, we have whom I love in the truth, whom I love in faithfulness to Christ. Again, we go back to John's primary focus is you must believe correctly about Jesus. You must believe correctly about his sacrifice, what he has done, and who he is in order that you'll be in right relationship with the church. So he loves Gaius in the truth, in his faithfulness, because he also knows that Gaius walks in the faithfulness to Christ. Um, this is very much a moment of bearing fruit. And John can see it. It's been reported to him. Now, in verses 2 to 4, we have this exordium, as it's called. It's a relationship between the sender and uh, the recipient. We have his prayer for good health and statements about Gaius's good character. The elder begins in verse 2 with the words, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. So again, we're back to this affectionate regard. John's going to keep this over and over with regard to Gaius. But then he adds this weird phrase, as it goes well with your soul. The Greek word suke. It normally means natural life in John. There's a whole bunch of references to his uh, gospel. And then 1 John but it can also sometimes mean one's inner life is distinct from their outer life, literally your soul, your inner being, if you want to call it that, the image of God within you. Uh, so this verse seems to, in the context of both letter writing and also John's theology, it seems to apply to Gaius's whole person as it goes well with John, uh, Gaius's soul, with his uh, person. 
So we move to verse 3, and we're, there we find out why the elder can say that things are going well with Gaius' soul. The brothers came and testified to your truth. You were living correctly. Right living begets right thinking and fellowship with God. So he says, the brothers came and testified to your truth. He remains faithful. And he persists in correct action as well, as indeed you were walking in the truth, he says about Gaius. So in the context of this letter where we're talking about not having anything to do with false missionaries, John is actually applauding Gaius for not putting up with them and basically telling him, keep doing this. He gives hospitality to the orthodox missionaries, those who are preaching correct doctrine, but he is not giving any hospitality to the heretics. And then we see there in verse 3, Something that appears in all three of John's letters and one of the connecting threads that we have through them. John's joy is made complete when the readers maintain fellowship with him by walking in the truth of Christ. So we see this 1 John chapter 1 verse 4, 2 John, chapter, uh, 2 John verse 4, and 3 John here in verses 3 to 4. And then in verse 4 he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. We have Gaius the child here, that John has sort of taken him under his wing. He is sort of this young, fledgling pastor. He's writing to encourage him. It's the same relationship that we see between Paul and Timothy, or Paul and Titus, for example. And it's the same relationship that we see today with Brother Glenn and me and Brother Glenn and Kevin. That the, the elder minister takes the younger one under his wing. He trains him. He helps him. He encourages him. And he provides counsel when needed. This is counsel that Gaius needs. So then we move to verses 5 to 8. And this is the first concern of the letter. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So in verse 5 we again have beloved. And then we have this compliment for his hospitality to the orthodox missionaries. Now this is not a moment for teaching. This is a moment for reinforcement. I see what you're doing. I've heard what you're doing. Continue to do it. It was the responsibility of strangers to report to their communities about the hospitality they had received during uh, their travels. So the elder reinforces Gaius's continued hospitality by assuring him of these reports. I didn't make a slide for it, but this is sort of the bona fides of the Greco-Roman world. You go into a strange community, someone in that community takes you into their home, they house you, they feed you for as long as you're there, and then when you leave, you write back to the people in your community, not to one particular person, but so that it can be spread in your community that, hey, the folks over there in Ephesus are really nice people, but the folks over there in Tarsus are not. Don't go there. Um, that kind of thing. It is not, I wouldn't say it's a gossip train necessarily, uh, but it is a way to know where uh, friendly folk are and where they are not. I mean, we continue to sort of do that today. So the first of the three references is to the church, to the ecclesia. Uh, we have three 
references of the Ecclesia in 3 John. In verse 6, which we're now looking at, those who have testified to your love before the church. Then in verse 9, I have written something to the church. And then in verse 10, talking about Diotrephes, he stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. What we're talking about with the Ecclesia is a local community of Christians. And we get our word ecclesiology, the study of the church or the gathered body from this Greek word ecclesia. Um, this is increasingly a topic of debate um, as particularly in the conversation about whether or not to ordain uh, women as pastors. Uh, the question of what is the ecclesia, what does it mean to speak in front of the gathered body, in front of the church, and what authority is given uh, to women, if any, to be able to do that. Uh, we also have that conversation coming in with this word ecclesia, and Paul uses it as well. So the elder encourages Gaius to continue what he is doing. He tells them to send them on their way, which functions, that word, uh, propimpo from the Greek, functions as a technical term for missionary support in the early church. Uh, if we don't get anything out, else out of 3 John, or 2 John, when we get there next week, it is that we should be supporting our missionaries. The church is called to support missionaries because it is a missionary religion. It didn't just kind of explode randomly. It took people going out and proclaiming the gospel and the correct gospel. So the phrase then that we have there in uh, verse 6, you do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, befit a manner befitting those who serve the living God. They are Christians. They are in league with you, they have the same message that you have, they're doing the same work that you are, they're traveling to do it, they are your brothers, they are your people, send them out as you would like to be sent out. Then we get to verses 7 to 8. The verses provide three reasons why it's appropriate for Gaius to send these missionaries out in a manner worthy of God. And I think this is appropriate for us in the contemporary church as well. Why do we support missions? Why do we do missions? For the sake of the name. To go out for Christ. This usually indicates in the New Testament when we see this phrase, it indicates contexts where people suffer persecution on account of their witness to Christ. So immediately, if Gaius has any concept of this phraseology in the early uh, church, then he understands that what uh, John is writing to him here is they're going out on a mission you're preaching a gospel that potentially puts you in harm's way that potentially puts you in a place to suffer persecution indeed you are suffering persecution because of diatrophies and the heretics that are coming through because of your witness to Christ as he's been revealed and as we believe it Paul uses the same language in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, whenever he's speaking of the grace he received to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles for the sake of the name, he says there. All right, secondly, they are dependent on Christian communities. In that day and in that time, and I think in some ways we still find ourselves here, uh, if the world found out that you were a Christian, you weren't welcome in most circles. So the church has a responsibility to take care of its missionaries because they're not getting any help from anybody else. They are dependent on these Christian communities. And then finally, that we may be 
fellow workers for the truth. To provide hospitality is to further the cause of the truth. And those who do so may be described as fellow workers for the truth. We'll think about Jesus here for a moment. Jesus never had a permanent home that we know of. He depended on the people in the communities that he visited uh, to provide for him housing and support. Uh, ironically, we know that Judas was the treasurer for Jesus' missionary group, if you want to call it that. So it is these Christian communities, or these, in Jesus' case, these Jewish communities who are hearing what he has to say and recognizing uh, at least that there is some power in what he says, whether or not they recognize him as the Messiah. They are supporting his mission. John's saying, now that we have Christ, now that we know who he is, now that we have that doctrine, we have these people who are believing in these ways, these same ways that we are, they're potentially being persecuted, Nobody's helping them except the church and their fellow workers for the truth. And we owe it to them to support them because it is only through their work that our gospel, what we believe our faith, goes anywhere. All right, verses 9 to 10. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want, who want to and puts them out of uh, the church. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. He is a lover of preeminence. He is a lover of being the big man in charge. Uh, he likes his authority. He's not going to do anything that will call that authority into question. He's also not going to allow anybody in that's going to call his authority into question. So it's this character that the elder John sees that causes him to address this letter to Gaius and to trust him to present its contents in the right way to the church. He doesn't send it to Diotrephes. Again, we see that in the way John presents it, Diotrephes is the big man in the community and Gaius is the sort of second tier, just regular old pastor. Uh, if we want to use somewhat contemporary language, we might say that Diotrephes amounted to sort of a bishop of an area, and then there were these local churches which Gaius represented one of. But John, having sent a letter to Diotrephes, and it's being rejected by Diotrephes, then sends it to Gaius and says, I'm trusting you. So he's calling Gaius to missionary work in that community. Had this letter been addressed directly to the church and not just to Gaius, then Diotrephes might have succeeded in having it suppressed as well. And I have to say, I never like people like this, so Diotrephes really must have been an obnoxious and unlovely person. Uh, because he was guilty of not acknowledging the elder's authority. Now, what we don't want to say here is that John also likes to be the big man in charge, and Diotrephes is challenging that. No. But what John is saying is, I am John the Apostle. I have been there. I have seen this. I'm telling you what the correct belief is because I walked where Jesus walked. I was there beside him. I saw him at the crucifixion. I leaned on him at the Last Supper. You can trust my testimony. We've seen this in 3 John already uh, down there in, let's see, verse 12. At the end of verse 12, he says, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. He's given all of this to Diotrephes, and Diotrephes has said, nah, I don't want any part of that. So what is literally meant here, 
when John says there that he does not acknowledge our authority is that he doesn't receive us. He doesn't have any, he doesn't hear us, doesn't hear our testimony. And we also know then by this letter that John's apostolic authority was widely respected. Um, again, we think of Paul as the big guy in the church. He was. We might think of Peter as the big guy in the church. He was, but we don't need to shortchange John back here. Furthermore, <laughs> this is, my mother says that if she's probably listening, I might get in trouble when I get home. Um, but she's, she often says that the apostle that she most identifies with is Peter because he's hot-headed. But I would say that she might ought to rethink that and consider John because the apostle is very confident that he can put Diotrephes in his place when John comes and visits the church. <laughs> he says, if he does, if I come, I will bring up what he's doing. So basically, if this letter doesn't work and doesn't do the job and I have to come down there personally, Diotrephes isn't getting off. He will have to deal with me. Uh, I love you, Mama. <laughs> but John here is not afraid to match his apostolic authority against this pretended authority of Diotrephes, whatever kind of authority that is. He is not afraid to take him on toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Diotrephes has made himself obnoxious to the elder by opposing the entertainment or the hospitality toward Christian brothers. Instead, what Diotrephes is doing is he is giving hospitality to the heretics. He's allowing them to come in. He's allowing them to have uh, their say rather than the Orthodox Christian perspective. But as we see in 3 John, as we'll see in 2 John, it is imperative to John the elder that those Orthodox Christian missionaries be respected above all when they come into your community. But we also see Diotrephes' immense power over the congregation because he has apparently some tacit approval of the majority. He's able to kick people out and presumably keep his position. At the end of verse 10, it says, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So it's not just that Diotrephes is refusing to allow the people in, but he's actually refusing to let the people stay in the church who adhere to right doctrine. So what is he doing? He's creating his own little heretical church. And what have we done today? Look at the prosperity gospel. Look at the word of faith movement. Look at these other, I'm not talking about the, you know, traditional denominations, don't get me wrong. But these movements which privilege something higher than Christ and higher than Christ's atonement. Diotrephes is a, a case study in the early church being guilty or potentially being guilty of allowing the same things that we've allowed. And we've stood back and watched it happen. John's saying, don't stand back and watch it happen. You recognize him for what he is and you go and you fix it. And if you don't, I'll come and I'll fix it. Now, it's hard to imagine how one man can exercise that level of authority, but apparently he did. Brother Reeve, I'll pick on you a minute. If you decided you didn't like my Sunday school lesson this morning and you went to the preacher and told him, well, I think we ought to kick him out, unless you had a good army of other people around you, I don't think they'd kick me out. Not today, anyway. Uh, they'd, they'd wait to find another pianist first. Uh, 
But we have Diotrephes. I keep gesturing. There's not a slide up there about him yet. Um, but we have Diotrephes. Who's able to do that? So he has this weird authority. Now this word that he puts them out is ekbale. Now we've seen this word if y'all kept up through the weird online COVID Sunday school through Mark. Uh, in reference to exorcisms, Mark also uses this word ekbale. So it's not just go on about your business. We don't want you here. It is sort of this very violent, intentional, ugly kicking them out of the church. But then we get to verses 11 to 12, and we see that Demetrius here is one of a different stamp altogether. The contrast between he and Diotrephes would not be lost on the congregation. He starts off, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. So we have John writing there, do not imitate beloved, do not imitate evil, indicating that he's writing there to Gaius, don't be like Diotrephes, don't aspire to that kind of power, but imitate good. But the broader context, what he probably intends for Gaius to go and tell his congregation is, don't imitate Diotrephes, but be like this humble servant Demetrius who has brought us this letter. And we have then John sticking his neck out on the line and testifying to the good character of Demetrius. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. John is so confident in Demetrius' ability and so confident in his faithfulness to the word that he's saying everyone, all of us here. And then he has this really weird phrase, even from the truth itself. Meaning, literally, he bears the approval of the truth as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Demetrius is a man whom you look at and you have no doubt through his actions, through his lifestyle, through whatever it is that he's doing, that he is saved, that he is a Christian, that he is fully and completely devoted to spreading the gospel of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we have John concerned with love, concerned with orthodoxy, concerned with making sure that you live in light, as we'll see in 1 John, live in the light of truth, saying of Demetrius, the truth itself bears testimony about Demetrius. So while this is not necessarily a letter to the congregation so much, and it is a letter to Gaius, I think for all of us, be more like Demetrius. Uh, this the Christians that we should be. We have Gaius. We should be like Gaius. We shouldn't tolerate heresy. But we should also be like Demetrius. So fully committed that even the gospel approves of our lives, of what we're doing. And that's important because as I talked about last week, when we get to this idea of sinlessness, that the Christians should be sinless, this is what... John is talking about. 
So the praise of the elder carries weight then because following that, he says, we also add our testimony. We also add our personal approval and our apostolic authority over here. We add our approval that Demetrius is also good. And you know that our testimony is true. But we also add our belief. We also add our gospel to this. Because, you know, we can't miss the fact that First, Demetrius has a good testimony from his community. Then Demetrius has testimony from the gospel itself. And only then does John say, oh, and he has mine too. Why? Because he adheres to that same gospel, that same truth that John is also concerned with. And then we get to the final greetings, verses 13 to 15. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. So we have this customary farewell. The author has more to write, but he would rather not write it with pen and ink. Now, earlier, John has said, if I have to come, I'm going to tangle up with diatrophies. And now he's saying, I'm going to come. But perhaps he won't come to tangle up with the diatrophies. Perhaps he'll come to support the community. How appropriate, the aliens. <laughs> They're coming for me. <laughs> That's another story. Anyway, um, huh, it made me forget where I was going with that. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, he plans to come, but does he plan to come to chastise Diotrephes, or does he plan to come to support Gaius and the work that Gaius is doing? And what John would rather do, what John intends to do, is to come and support Gaius. I have more to write to you, but I'd rather say it to you face to face. I'd rather come see you and share in that community that you've built over there, wherever he's writing to, presumably somewhere in Ephesus. But now the phrase that he uses there is really kind of funny to me. Stoma prostoma, literally mouth to mouth. It's more intimate than face to face, which is Paul's favorite version of this. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. But it's something more akin to eyeball to eyeball. And what do we mean when we say eyeball to eyeball? Not only do we want to have that intimate conversation with somebody, but we can have that intimate conversation because we're seeing on the same level and we're in agreement. So it's not like he's going to talk to Diotrephes where John's going to have the superiority because he has the correct belief. He's going to come to talk to Gaius as an equal because we share in our belief. He's coming to speak to him eyeball to eyeball. And then we have these last two phrases or last three phrases, peace be to you, but the friends greet you. So my community here, wherever Paul's writing, uh, Paul, wherever John's writing from, greets you. And then he says, greet the friends each by name. Now, the use of the word friends there is strange for the New Testament. Sometimes we'll see brothers. Sometimes we'll see the church. Paul likes to use just sort of this broad greet the church. Uh, the fellow laborers in Christ, Paul will use that sometimes, but not the friends. But John, 
sort of gets back to this real understanding of Jesus here. What does it mean to be a friend of God? Jesus refers to those around him as friends. So then John's saying, greet the friends, the people who believe in the truth and the power of the gospel that we proclaim. Greet them, each by name. Now, can you imagine? We sort of do it here, but maybe not so much. If Brother Glenn got a letter from, it would be strange, but if he got a letter from the Apostle John, and then he had to walk around here and say, John says hello, Miss Dot. John says hello, Brother Rick. John says hello, Miss Joyce. Because that's the kind of community that John envisioned, a community where everybody is important, where nobody is left out. The community that Paul says, in Christ there is no Juno Greek male or female. That's the same community, but so much more personal here in John. All right, so we talked about this at the beginning. Is this a letter? Yes. We have an opening with the sender, verse 1, prayer and thanksgiving, verses 2 to 4. Body of the letter, verses 5 to 12, and then the closing with greetings, verses 13 to 15. So next week when we get to Second John, we will see John telling us, the church particularly, what we should do. So how should we treat those Christian missionaries when they come? Now that we know that we're not supposed to deal with the heretics at all, not even really supposed to tolerate them, now we'll see what we're supposed to do with those who preach correctly and proclaim the, the true gospel. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. If you enjoyed our study, please be sure to like us on Facebook at Methodes KBC or our church page at Kokomo Baptist Church.